Welcome to the Why God Why podcast, brought to you by Browncroft Community Church. My name is Dylan Carnivale, and I am the Browncroft staff and producer of the show. Today, I'm joined by our host, Peter Englert, Director of Adult Ministries here at Browncroft, and John Amayo, the New York State Crew Director. Why God Why is a podcast where we ask 21st century questions about God that you never thought you could. Today's guest is Katie Burkowski. She's a sports management professor at St. John Fisher and has been there for the last eight years and also is a member at Browncroft Community Church for the last five. Today we're talking about why are people so obsessed with sports? John and Peter? John, are you ready for this? What? I mean, this uh, is this, is, this is our dream topic. This really pod- is. Like all the rest of the podcasts we do, I feel like these are questions people are asking. This yeah. is a question you and I are asking. Totally selfish. <laughs> totally selfish to have Dr. Uh, B here with us today. We're super excited about having Katie here. But uh, why is this exciting to you, Peter? Why do you think it's exciting? Well, you know, I'm thinking of seven-year-old Peter, oh. all four or five of him. Look at that. Out. And he's so cute. Out. He has that big hair too, right? Just like my daughter. Right. And he's shooting hoops. Yeah. And he's idolizing Michael Jordan and Scottie Pippen. Yeah. And he's saying to himself, someday I'm going to become an NBA basketball player. Uh, and there's a love affair with sports that obviously my life did not go that direction. <laughs> I wish Steph Curry was there because maybe that might have changed a little bit. But um, yeah, sports is just a huge love of mine. So, John, what about you? Well, yeah, I think the same thing. I think of, you know, floppy-haired John when he was eight years old uh, watching This Week in Baseball and uh, reenacting every dive that he saw, you know, watching the Philadelphia Phillies win a World Series when he was in first grade and kind of that becoming his uh, love from that point on. And they've taken him on a wild ride. And then since then, you know, high school, collegiate John, watching and cheering for the Buffalo Bills in all four straight Super Bowls and watching them destroy his heart every single time. And then consequently, year after year, still finding myself going back and cheering for those same Bills year after year, even after they they hurt my heart. So this is gonna be a real therapy session, I feel like, for me. I feel like Katie's gonna bring a lot of great stuff into this discussion. Maybe she can diagnose me and, and why I'm feeling the way I'm feeling. But, uh, you, you know, know, we can't ask her our recent episode with Carl Binger. We can't ask her to deal with our depression about that. And then again, I'm a Jets fan. So that's true. In, in all seriousness, though, I, I think this is a question that we're all asking. And sports is radically changing. And one of the things that I think Katie's going to bring to this conversation, um, my friend Zach, he calls it fair trade sports. So are we really taking time to understand what we're consuming And uh, there's been enough discussions now that it's important for us to just stop and pause. Why do we love sports? Why do we hate sports? No matter where you are in the sports spectrum, I think you're going to love this podcast. So agreed. And so without any further ado, let's welcome Katie. Katie, thanks for joining us today. Thank you for having me. I wish you two were not just like totally locked in with eye contact because yeah. through the evolution of that introduction, you would have seen my face like, whoa, that's a lot of pressure. And <laughs> what are you talking about self-diagnosis? Like if you could just watch my facial expressions through the whole thing, this is going to be a great disappointment for both of you. <laughs> <laughs> well, hold on a second. Hold on a second. You you teach college students and I actually went to one of Katie's classes. I think being a college professor for 18 to 22 year olds better prepares you for a podcast than anything else. I just want to just. That might be true. I guess we'll see how this plays out. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Well, 
Katie, this, let, let's set kind of a baseline here, what we're talking about. Uh, we're, this is a pretty broad topic, but kind of, can you let, let our listeners in on your experience with sports? Like, how has this become a passion for you? You got your doctorate in yeah. this. You're teaching this in college now. Yeah. I assume this just didn't pop out of nowhere for you. Like, how, how did this become your passion? Well, not to pull Jesus into it already, yeah. but, um, you know, when people talk about their faith experience, lots of people, similar to what you guys just did, you talked about a mountaintop moment, sort of you have these very vivid memories of where you were really moved and pulled in it, very... Um, I don't know, mountaintop moment. And so my faith is very much so like that to where I do not have a mountaintop moment. It was incremental things along the way that pulled me to where I am now. Sport is the same way. I was always an active kid, um, always involved, not necessarily obsessed. I am somebody that loves sport, but not a fanatic. Hmm. In, in any way, shape, or form. Um, so I grew up playing. I was uh, pretty much playing year-round. I played soccer was really my main sport. I played Tennis, that didn't last long. I swam, that didn't last long. I ran track, that didn't last long. I played basketball because my friends played basketball. That was a hot mess. Mm. Um, and then I played I played soccer in college on a JV team at a Division One school. So good enough to keep playing, not good enough to be a, a good player. Um, and <clears throat> excuse me, more so than... More so than being driven to be a sport management professor specifically, I was drawn to continue to work in higher ed. So I worked as a residence hall director for a while. I became a director of campus recreation after I got my master's degree. And then um, my position was being eliminated, so I became a sports information director, which for people who don't really know what that is, um, if you've read any news or paid attention to uh like let's say you're a Notre Dame fan and you're reading their content on their website, on their Twitter account, their Facebook account, whatever it might be. Sports information director is the one creating all that content. Got They're it. the ones responsible for statting every single game, for communicating with the NCAA, for putting out press releases, holding press conferences, basically like your director of communications, depending what sort of school you're at, the title would be different. Yeah. Um, but all that communications media stuff. So I transitioned into that position with having no experience whatsoever. It was a way that um, the AD helped save save me in terms of helping me keep a job at the college I was working at. Okay. Um, and what school through. was that? That was Pfeiffer University. It's a division two school in North Carolina, pretty gotcha. small school. Okay, cool. So um, that pulled me, I got more sport experience. And then through that, still working in higher ed, I was like, you know, I can do more with this. And so I transitioned to getting my PhD and it just all kind of clicked. It made sense, but there was never a dream from the get go of, I love sports so much. I'm going to go and work in sport. Yeah. It, it was micro changes along the way. So in thinking about what you just said there, what I'm trying to figure out is we talk about sports as if one side you're the fanatic mm -hmm. and another side you completely hate it. So how do you walk, I won't even say balance, but how do you walk that harmony and loving sport, but also not letting it take over your life? I think for me, it's actually easier because of that, because I'm not on opposite ends of the spectrum. Um, where it is a hindrance for me, though, is that when I go into classroom, my students are always like, what's your favorite team? What's your favorite league? What are you paying attention to? Like, what do you know? Like, what's the free agency contract details about this person? And I'm always like, I don't, I don't know. I, I love sport. I love the community around sport. I love being at live sporting events. Um, but you know, give me tickets to go see cricket. Give me tickets to go see 
Um, I was going to say junior high girls basketball, but I draw lines. Somewhere. I was just there no last offense, night. No offense to yeah. anybody. Like I support you in doing it. I support all the yeah. girls growing up and playing. But if you've ever sat down and watched a junior high girls basketball game, when the total score is 10, it is rough. That's actually <laughs> so similar to what I just experienced yes. last night. Yes. But My daughter's team. Um, amazing team. Love you girls. They, they, they scored 10. It's an very, it's a very important time period too in the formation, like wanting, particularly at junior high, keeping girls involved in sport. It's a critical time period where they ditch out because it's no longer cool or they feel like it's not feminine feminine enough or they're not getting the right sort of attention for it. And so I I support it. I just don't really want to go watch it, to be (laughs) frank, Um, which is awful. But um, I I think that because I'm not walking into a classroom talking about how I'm a rabid fan of anything. it's a little bit, I think at times it can make students question if I know what I'm talking about because I'm not obsessive about it. Um, but what I try to do is try to pull in the perspective that you can be interested in other things. It's okay. You can read about poverty or, you know, I was reading a book earlier in the semester about the Donner Party. And it was, a. Um, if you guys aren't familiar, the Donner Party um, traveled west and sort of were trapped in a snowstorm and stuff happened. And But this book was phenomenal. And, and actually, if you take a deep dive into my Instagram, you can find a, a picture of the book if you're really interested. Um, <laughs> but it's a really good, and that's my history background. That's having gotten a history degree. You know, I'm a sport management professor now, which is, I always tell students, you you don't know your path that's going to unfold as you go. Just be open, open doors for yourself. And then when you're faced with one, make the best decision for yourself at the time, you know? So anyway, I'm sorry, I'm rambling, but um, I I try to say, you know, it's okay. You can go home and read that Donner Party book on a whatever night. You don't have to be watching the game because the game is on. Mm. That, that's okay. And, and in teaching sport business, you should be engaged with the sport industry to some degree. And I would argue how much of a degree, like you can have a balanced life. This is spoiler alert. The, the end result we're going to get to is you need to have a balanced life. Mm. Mm. So let me ask you this. You, you grew up in the Buffalo area. Um, for our listeners who haven't seen this Instagram profile yet, but you have a Sabres hat on right now. I do. So, you know, tell me, why do you think there are so many rabid, fans or fanatics with sports so if you're familiar with the principle of um social capital it's a a textbook definition if you're if you even googled it it would probably say something like social capital is the glue that holds communities together Mm. it's the stuff that we talk about where you get the street credit for knowing it's it's the old um water cooler conversation if you're walking by and someone says something like, did you see the game last night? You have a contribution to that conversation. You then are brought into the in-group. And so depending what community you're in, um, depending what little mini social world you're living in, it doesn't have to be sport. But in American society, it is predominantly sport. Mm. So if you can talk about it, if you know about it, it makes you connected to other people. It brings you in with other people. And it's something that collectively as a culture, we've said there is a value to sport. And in in my opinion, um, and maybe this is like blasphemy from a sport management professor, there's too much weight on sport in our culture today. And so, I mean, if you think about think about high school sports and how communities rally, why don't we do that for the symphony? Why don't we do that for the theater group? Why don't we do that for really name anything else? And it's because collectively we've come together and as a culture said sport matters. Hmm. 
Do you think that points to something else that's lacking with us? Because I've noticed, at least in my observation, like it doesn't seem like people are getting less fanatical about sports now. It seems like people are getting like more fanatical than than ever about sports. Do you think that that kind of points to something underneath the surface that that we as a society are kind of lacking and and saying, man, I, I just wish this were here, but because it's not, I'm kind of putting my emphasis on sports. I don't know that I would answer your question the way you're leading me to, yeah. but I think maybe what I would say is that 24 seven media culture doesn't help with this. Mm -hmm. And so we can access sport. You can access more sport content now than ever before in history, which is part of the reason why we look at MLB ratings, NBA ratings, they're dipping. So like, I'm going to use the NBA as an example here. People were sort of freaking out when the first NBA ratings came out for this season and they were thinking, oh, we have a crisis in the NBA, ratings are down. But here's the thing, their YouTube social content, those, uh, if you look at the key metrics, are skyrocketing. Mm -hmm. So fans are saying, look, I don't have the time to sit down and watch a whole game. And the NBA is really about the the highlights, the the big plays anyway. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to go to either the team or the NBA's YouTube channel, and I'm going to watch a 20 minute summary video with some commentary with the big plays. And I'm going to get everything I need to know in 20 minutes, as opposed to sitting down for two hours and watching the game. Right. And so because it's so accessible and when you want it to be accessible, you can be in the know all the time. And if we even consider things, you know, I was walking down Park Ave the other day and I was looking at, there's a little pub, half pint pub. It's on the corner of uh, Oxford and Park Ave, tiny little place, flying a Liverpool flag. That's a Liverpool um, backers bar. It, 20 years ago, would you find a Liverpool bar in Rochester? I can tell you there's another one right down the street from that too. Mm -hmm. It's evidence of the fact that we can get it anytime we want. We can mm. watch international sport anytime we want. We can get these clips. We can get the information. We can get the trade stuff. So I think what it does is having all of that information coming at us, whether we're seeking it out or not, it puts us in the in the forefront of our minds constantly. Mm. And so it, it's no longer just the water cooler conversation. It is ongoing all the time. And yeah. again, if we're saying we value it, it's like a system that is just feeding that cultural emphasis over and over and over again. You know, uh, where I need to confess, like I, I realize when I go to the gym and I'm on the treadmill and I turn on ESPN, usually I'll get there halfway between a show and like I run for 20 minutes. So I'll get towards the tail end of a show and then the next show, whatever it is, will actually start with the same thing. So if you go to the mm -hmm. gym at like five and you're getting the tail end of pardon the interruption, then the first story that's covered on, um, well, actually it's the other way around. It's around the horn and then mm -hmm. part of the inner, like they're telling the same things and all you're getting is a bunch of different opinions. So it's funny because I think where John and I tend to go as kind of theologians, pastors, ministers will say mm -hmm. is like there's this deep meaning to belong. But even now that's shifting from what you're saying to I want to be part of the water cooler conversation, but give it to me in doses that I mm -hmm. want to have it. Yeah. And I think it's a bit compulsive. And so it's this fear of, well, other people have this information and I need to know it because I'm going to be out of the know. Then I, I can't keep up with the pace. I think if people were really focused on politics, like if we were changing this to a political conversation instead of sport, we would be saying the same thing about CNN or Fox News or pick your outlet and that how they're sort of just reframing or reemphasizing a framing of a 
position over and over and over again throughout the day, ESPN is doing the exact same thing. Mm. Um, and so for us, if we're getting into these conversations and we feel like we need to know this stuff, it's, well, is there this other perspective or is this, is there this other nugget of information I'm supposed to have that then makes me in the know that then binds mm. us together even better? Yeah. Yeah. So, so good. So I, I think when, when we look at any topic, really, we can kind of, I think as Peter was kind of addressing this before, you kind of want to go one way or another with it, like all good, mm-hmm. all bad. Um, I, I think sports is one of those things that we can kind of put in the, it can be really good. It can turn dark kind of thing, yeah. you know? Um, I, so before we get to kind of the shadow side of it, what would you say, hey, here are some of the best parts of sports? Obviously, you you must enjoy them because you're a professor who teaches about this stuff. So Absolutely. Um, what do you think the the best part of sport is? Oh, I'm not going to answer an absolute question like that. But, um, <laughs> wow, you really. <laughs> How about this? I, I like what this. is your favorite parts of sport? Oh, wow. Connection. Unity and connection. I... So as somebody wearing the Sabres hat in the room, um, you know, I, I was a season ticket holder um, in the time period. We're talking 2005, coming out of the lockout, 2006. Sabres were really good. To be in, I don't know, at the time, I think it was HSBC Arena, but now KeyBank. To be there when a, go- a goal is scored with 10 seconds left in a game, I, I can't describe to you that feeling, mm. but I can feel it when I think of it. I can remember, generally speaking, because all those games kind of blend for me, I have Swiss cheese brain again. It's, you know, but I was there for some amazing moments in the playoffs. Um, thank you, student loans, for helping me fund <laughs> playoff tickets. But, um, you know, I can think of who was around me. I have I have some of those crystal clear, clear memories like we were talking about Um not about who scored the goal, not about who was on the ice, but about how I felt in that moment and who was next to me. Mm. And that like that connection, I think whether you're a spectator or you're actually playing in the moment, that doesn't get replicated elsewhere. That exact feeling, I have never been in a situation where I find it like that. Maybe, honestly, the closest thing would be in church sometimes when there's just the song that gets me and I am with people who I just... Like we are vibing in the same way that moment. Um, but even then, no disrespect, Jesus. I'm not sure it's quite the same, you know? This is a safe place for only a couple thousand people to hear you say it. You know. <laughs> I felt fine when I was talking to three people, a couple thousand. <laughs> well, you know, I, I, one of my friends went to like a U2 concert and mm. he actually said like at one moment he felt like he was going to raise his hands like he was in church. Mm. And I I guess as a pastor, I don't hear that as a bad thing. That's why I joke about it, because in some ways our life is created for these moments that we can't create. And so it's only kind of showing that longing. Mm. I think it provides, to build off of what you're saying, I think it provides an opportunity to feel joy like children feel joy, where you are totally unencumbered in that moment and you are just feeling it. Um, and it's rare. We cap ourselves throughout our lives and a lot of others, maybe all other scenarios where we are capping our reactions because we're stopping to think about it's impression management. Mm. What are people around me thinking? And I think lots of times when you're surrounded by, you know, 20,000 other crazy fans, you're supported in being just who you are in that celebratory moment. That's phenomenal. And yeah. I think that 
again, to reinforce what our culture reinforces. If you think about any time, watch March Madness leading up to the Super Bowl here, we're talking about, um, think about all the player highlights where the media is going to emphasize the gym rat or the the kid who was a compulsive player and wanted to get better over and over again was always seeing opportunities. We hear that and we celebrate that because of where they are now. Mm. To go, I know I'm mm-hmm. previewing to the CD underside, we don't talk about, okay, great, but what about that person who doesn't make it and they only developed unidimensionally and they have nothing else in their life and all they know is how to do that one thing and they're incredibly unfulfilled because they didn't give themselves more in life. So we yeah. celebrate it when it's a success and when it looks outwardly like the ideal, but we don't entertain it when that's all someone has. Yeah. So is that the biggest underbelly that you think there is? I mean, I shouldn't say you think that, but like, is that the one that you focus on the most or are there some other, um, you know, I think there's a tie between social justice and sports and, and things like that. So, I mean, what are some, what are some areas that you're focused on that you wish more fans or even more non fans were aware of? Uh, Something that I don't get into enough that I wish I could get into more is the human trafficking that surrounds sport. Um, And there's a lot of human trafficking with sex slavery around world mega events. So if you're looking at the Super Bowl, there was a great case study of the Super Bowl when it was in New York the last time. All of the training that they did for flight attendants and airport workers and um, security and just other people who could see things that the average person doesn't know to look for um, that would communicate that there's something going on, people being trafficked to come into this area for certain reasons. If we look at there's been lots of reports in Qatar for the World Cup about um, slavery and, you know, for workers to help build everything that they need to build the infrastructure. Um, I didn't know about this. I learned about it a couple of years ago. If you look at um, particularly with young African boys, promises that are made to come to Europe, particularly like promises to go play for um, development clubs in Europe that then they're trafficked. They never are into a sport training system. Um, if we look at so the the human trafficking component, I don't think we pay enough attention to. Um, and I think that another thing we don't pay attention to is just the the, the basics of inequity, like you had mentioned. Um, there's a really good film if you have Netflix and you haven't seen it. Um, I think it's I don't know how to pronounce it exactly. I think Icarus. Um, it's about this guy who's a cyclist and he wants to dope intentionally to see if he can beat the doping systems. Um, this film won an Oscar, and what ends up happening is the 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 cyclist gets hooked up with this guy in Russia. His name's Grigory. I can't remember his last name. Um, but he it, the whole story unfolds, and not to give it all away, but basically we find out that Grigory is the key linchpin point of all of the state sponsored doping in Russia. And wow. so if if we get excited around the Olympics, we want to woo the U.S. got fourteen gold medals. This is amazing. There's a reason. We're a wealthy country. We have amazing training. Jamaica, in some sports might, but across the board, is never going to truly compete with the U.S., is never going to truly compete with uh, Russia. We want to believe major world events like the World Cup, like the Olympics, um, you know, that that it brings all these people together and serves a greater good. The outcomes are a result of money and power. They're not a result of just having the best athletes. We have the best athletes because we have the best training systems, because we have the most money to put into them. Um, If we want to look at amazing baseball players coming out of the Dominican Republic, there's a reason why. They put a ton of money into developing baseball players. You know, so 
you can always follow the money in sport and it is the opportunities it can provide people. Amazing. We are lying to ourselves if we think that people dominate purely just on talent. There's always money tied into it that mm. make that happen. Yeah. Speaking of always money, I want to go back. I want to go kind of to another topic that's sports related mm -hmm. that I think is really dominant right now. Fantasy sports. Mm, yeah. Um, you know, I, 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 a couple of years ago, I, I kind of quit fantasy sports because I was like, this is taking up too much of my mm -hmm. mental space. Like, and I was only playing fantasy football, like, yep. and, and I wasn't betting on it. I was just doing it with friends. And I found myself like going, I can't do this anymore because I'm like obsessing over, th over this. What's funny is when I was preparing for the podcast, I was, and you know, I was thinking about the questions you'd ask and, um, my sister who is wonderful, I'll get text messages during football season all the time. The guys in my office won't shut up. And she's in like a cubicle <laughs> situation all day, every day, mm. leading like Monday after football, leading up to Monday night, Wednesday leading to Thursday, Friday discussing what happened on Thursday, like incessant conversation about fantasy. Right. Yeah. Right. That's becoming a thing now. And I think it's some of that's tied to money. Where, where else do you see that tied to just in in our in our capacity to to just get obsessed with it on that level. So I'm a pretty competitive person. Yeah. I'm competitive though about stupid things and things that I really believe that I have a chance to be to win. Yeah. Um so I'm I'm not competitive when I can recognize my own limitations. If there's a stake and I can win, I want to win. I want to Remember how I said I was going to sound through all my words? I want to dominate mm. whoever I'm competing against. I don't want to just win. I want to dominate. I want you to cry. I want you to publicly <laughs> praise me. I want I want to win. Yeah. Um, I'm not the only one out there that's like that. And so I think that we are competitive. And we, again, reward that. And this is not all bad. I, I, I This is where I struggle in class. And I was telling Peter about this. I struggle to not overemphasize one component of it. I think that fantasy is awesome and that it can bring people together. You are doing something fun with your friends. It is fun. Something I just saw in this last week on Twitter, um, there was a woman who had tweeted something along the lines of she was losing fantasy. She was in last place. She was hoping she wasn't going to lose this week because if she lost this week, she was going to, the punishment, she was going to have to sit in a waffle house for 24 hours. And every waffle she ate reduced the penalty by one hour. I think it is an awesome penalty for losing your <laughs> fantasy league. I think it's amazing. And it's fun because, again, we're not talking about addictive gambling. We're not talking about right. problematic gambling behaviors. Um, so I think it's a lot of fun. She also, I mean, I could look it up. How many tens of thousands of likes on Twitter did she get because of that? So we we publicize this stuff and because it's funny and it's fun, but it's also reinforcing do funny, fun things like this and and really get it. Now she was losing because she, I think, self-admittedly was like, I don't pay attention. I just pick whoever and, you know, yeah. fine, cool. But it's like we use we use these mechanisms to reinforce this type of behavior that then be, just becomes like a, this is what we do. And it, um, you know, I think I'm sort of rambling here. Sorry. I think of it also like proposal video stories, which I hate, mm. um, like make your proposal about you and your spouse, like, cool, like, great. You did a viral video. That's now you were at home Depot or wherever. And you did this huge, amazing, you're doing it for the internet attention. 
You're not doing it because you really want to do it. You're not doing it because it's the moment. It's because of what you're going to get from other people. And so I think that I'm way off the track of fantasy here, but I think that fantasy is great, but we have all these other mechanisms that will bring attention to it. Trash talking, um, publicly highlighting who wins or loses and what happens when you win or lose. And don't get me wrong. I'm on the internet for that content, Mm. but maybe that's part of the problem. Mm. Well, and, and there's another part to it where, and and I suffer from this assumption. So I'm a Jets fan. I'm a Nets fan and I'm a Yankees fan. And, um, you're a mess. I, well, it's all New York teams, but yeah. I'll, I'll tell you that story later. Um, but here's kind of the assumption I feel like I have, if I'm not in check, it's this belief that if I was in that power position, whether it's the GM or coach or offensive coordinator or anything like that, I could do a better job. I'm going to tell you, sometimes I wish I, despite the fact I'm physics dumb, sometimes I wish I picked physics because I guarantee you a physics professor never hears things like, well, it's just physics. The way we hear it's just sport. And like, I could do it better. In my younger days, I did not tell anybody like that I met out in public that I worked in sport was a sport management professor because people would always tell me how they knew more than I did. And I was like, I've earned a PhD in this. Do not tell me you know more than I do. You watch a lot of ESPN, ESPN, you consume a lot of content, and that does make you knowledgeable, but it's curated information coming out to you. It is not true. Like, I, nothing drives me as crazy when people want to talk about how they know what a coach should have done or what they know about player signings and this and that. You do not know what's going on in the organization unless you work with someone in the organization or someone in the organization is blabbing to you directly. And even then, it's one perspective. It's not so it's like a hot button issue for me because everyone thinks they're an expert on it. So sometimes I'm like, man, if I was a physics professor, no one would. I mean, how many people are going to walk up to me and tell me that they know more than I do? Well, and the funny thing about that is um, so there's this author, Marsha Mouts uh, Stoop, um, where her husband was an offensive coordinator for Mm -hmm. the Chicago Bears. And she tells this story that she's sitting in the stands and this guy yells at at John and basically says he's the worst offensive coordinator ever. I could do a better job than him. Expletive, expletive. And she turns around and she goes, that's my husband. And the guy like just doesn't care. And so I can only, you know, and John, I don't know if you feel like as a pastor, you know, there's this mug that John and I text. It says like your ability to Google search does not <laughs> equal my masters of theology. So like, I think there's a little bit to all of us, but I feel like with sports, I there's church people that want to think that they've read as many books, but with with sports, it's way more accessible to have those conversations. And so I can completely understand where you're, you know, kind of coming from. I know we're getting close in our time, too, but there's a whole gendered component, too, of when I walk into a classroom, I have to prove to my students that I know anything about sport. My male colleagues walk into a classroom. They just believe that they do Um, when you're, you know single person out at a bar meeting people, it's, there are guys, oh, cool, you do that, cool. And then there's other guys that all of a sudden want to be like, who was the head coach of the Montreal Canadiens in 1972? Bro, I wasn't even alive. Like, I don't know. And and what value does that add? It doesn't. So there's, I mean, this is talking about, in education, they call it Bloom's Taxonomy. It's information versus knowledge versus wisdom. Like, cool, I can Google search anything, but it's about the application. So, 
Our degrees don't make us any smarter than anyone else, but it does mean we've intentionally worked to learn on a certain topic. And so we're growing from having just information to knowledge to wisdom, synthesizing it, critically thinking about it. And so I'm down for having a conversation with you about sport. I'm not down for debating the thing you heard on ESPN or read online and expecting me to just come at you with trivia bits of information it's not who i am it's not how my brain works well let, let's just take a little extra time because i mean you brought it up you're a woman in a you know a, a fairly prestigious college saint john fisher of course associated with the buffalo bills i mean just for our listeners no one's going to interrupt you maybe i will by accident <laughs> but i mean tell us a little bit more about that experience of being a woman as a sports scholar Oh, I'm not sure I'd call myself a sports scholar, and I really appreciate that you did that um, for me. Um, but this is this is part of it. Imposter syndrome. I think that if you talk to a lot of women who work in either sport directly or sport education, um, sport management education, I think that a lot of us would express things that sound like imposter syndrome to where we just feel like we're not good enough or we don't know enough. And we're constantly um, feeling this bit of a compulsion to to some degree overcompensate or prove ourselves over and over again. Um, you know, as I, as we opened this, I was saying that I'm not a fanatic and I, I felt like I often feel like my students are a little bit let down by that or disappointed by that. I'll also say in year eight, I'm a lot more comfortable with that than in year one I was because I give a different perspective and I say, Hey, look, you don't have to live and breathe this 24 seven to be smart, to be driven, to accomplish things in your career. And that's with any career, not just sport. Um, I think that I talk with my female students about this a lot. There's a lot of pressure to be the cool girl. So, uh, you know, the guy's girl who is going to drink beer, who's not going to look for the cocktail, who's going to be able to curse and, and hang in with the guys who can talk about fantasy and wants to play fantasy. There is pressure to in that world to be attractive, to be desirable, to be treated as an equal, that you have to be the guy's girl. You can't just be who you are. Um, and it takes a lot of time to sort of self-correct back to who you want to be. I mean, I think I started doing that in college, sort of molding myself to who I thought guys wanted me to be, particularly around the platform of sport. And it has taken me to now to start being, to, to be able to be a little bit more comfortable with myself and say like, yeah, some of those components are me, but like, I'm okay with watching the Hallmark Christmas movie instead of the the Bills game that's on right now or, you know, that, that I, I choose my moments when I want to watch and I choose my moments when I don't and when I want to, that I'm a multifaceted person and I don't have to, to express myself in a one dimensional way. Mm. It seems to me what you're kind of describing as you're talking, and I just appreciate your vulnerability in that, is that that sports have the capacity, and, and, and it's kind of woven throughout what you were saying, not just in, in your recent thing, what you're recently referencing your own experience, but just everything you've been talking about, that sports has the capacity almost to be dehumanizing in some way. Mm. Like we can look at, whether it's looking at the athletes and go mm -hmm. going, oh, you know, we don't really care about them. You're a commodity. As, yeah, you're a commodity or just talking about it amongst each other mm -hmm. that that we fail to, we, we kind of just 
shut out the fact that you're another human being just because you're cheering for a different team or something like is that yeah i think this goes along just with american culture like i think one of the because sport is so ingrained in american culture i think we are not a culture of gray we want to live in the black and the white and so being in the middle somewhere we don't celebrate that. We describe that as being wishy-washy. There's a, ooh, I'm going to sound like a professor here in a second. There's the um, author, an academic, his name's Robert Cialdini. He um, is more of a, he looks at psychology principles. And so he's written a couple books. One of them I really like is called um, Influence. I use it in my sport and social media class. And there's another one called um, Persuasion, and it's all about how to get people to do the things that you want them to do, what psychological principles. And one of the ones he talks about is commitment and consistency. We celebrate commitment to things and consistency in upholding that commitment. And so if you live in the gray, it's not clearly doing that. We we downgrade or we d- degrade people who are seen as wishy-washy or um, – what's the word I'm looking for? Um inconsistent. And and so I think that, that that goes along with what you were saying. And I wish we had a ton of time. I feel like we've been talking for five minutes and I know we have been talking for a lot more than that, but we're not even talking about things like the pressure on kids and youth sport and how much emphasis we put in that and the false promises that are made and the massive amounts of money that go into that and how kids are sort of just in this system that can provide amazing outcomes, great performance, development of character, great friendships, mentoring roles from coaches. There's also all these other negative outcomes of burnout and overuse injury and kids just being not happy and not learning how to play, but always being scheduled out. I mean, there's a bunch of ways we could go with this. And the hard part is with sport, like you're saying, it's it's not one side. There's always a variety of experiences here that can be experienced. It's ensuring that there should be a variety of experiences, not one end of the spectrum. Well, and and even just to come back more to the point that you and John are making, I mean, <clears throat> so I'm a Yankees fan. Mm-hmm. Garrett Cole just got Garrett Cole just got signed for like the largest deal. Mm-hmm. And most people, if I was probably to pull them, I'm going to make this assumption, are saying Garrett Cole is like the greediest, you know, and maybe for the Yankees it's a little bit different, but you know, I think about even holdouts in football. Mm-hmm. You know, Running backs now, you know, people will say things like, I'm not saying it's right, they're a dime a dozen. So when Le'Veon Bell sits out because he doesn't get a contract, he's seen as selfish. And I have a lot of respect for the Rooney family in in Pittsburgh, but it's not like they're hurting that they couldn't. And and that's kind of the double side with sports is here's the owners making a ton of money. And then here we're unfair with the players. And I'm sure there's times when people are upset with the owners. Um, We won't bring up the Cleveland Browns, but, you know, just them moving from Cleveland to Baltimore. But, you know, there is kind of this unfairness that on one hand we celebrate great job making money, getting championships. But then when a player wants to get support. So those are probably what are some other issues like that? Um, You know, I was really listening to you. And I was processing that. Yeah, ask me the question. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, you I was can... actually thinking about. You said Cleveland. Is aren't we talking about Indy, Indian Baltimore? Is it Indy, not Cleveland? Well, no, no, yeah. no, no. The the Browns went from 
Cleveland to Baltimore because the Colts left Baltimore. Okay. So there, there's See, that whole. You got that. Bringing... No, no. You, you, you had the, it. You just had the history of it. I was really stuck on that point. Oh, That's no. why I have no clue what question you asked me. <laughs> well, I mean, just, you know, kind of, I mean, we're taking a little bit of extra time, which I'm okay with because this is such a big issue. But as you're talking to fans, mm -hmm. like what are some other issues that, you know, just you would say, you know, if you're tending to side with the owner as opposed to the player or. Oh, yeah, I think my main my main point with that is it's an open market. And if they're getting paid what their value actually is, you as a fan might say, hey, guess what? I don't think you're worth this money. But the market has deemed that those players are worth that money. You can't get upset about that. And that is reinforced by the fact that we buy the cable packages, we tune in and watch, we pay for the tickets. Um, you know, this was my big beef around the NFL and um, domestic violence. I don't brand myself as an NFL fan. I'll sit down and watch, like, honestly, this sounds <laughs> probably really wrong, but if I'm dating someone who's a fan, I'm way more apt to watch than just on my own. But, you know, on Sunday or whatever, I'll flip through if the bills are on cool, I'll probably be doing other stuff. I'm not a fan is what I'm trying to say. I will casually watch, but I'm not a fan. But when the whole domestic violence stuff, particularly with Ray Rice, we were having all these conversations about it. If you don't like it, don't go to the games. Mm. The NFL would change if you didn't go to the games. It's that simple. Don't put your money behind a product you don't agree with. You don't get to choose. I love this player in this on-field performance, but I don't agree with a um, player discipline process. If you are motivated enough by the player discipline process, you won't put your money behind it. It's a hierarchy of values. What do you value more? And when you put your money behind it and you're saying that you don't agree with a disciplinary process, for example, with the NFL and their domestic violence policy, which is better than it ever has been before, but if you... In putting your money behind those tickets and the cable package and tuning in and buying the jerseys, you are saying, I value the play more than I value the spouses at home. Mm. And it is that simple. Mm. We just get really uncomfortable when we think of it that way. Because our lives across all avenues of our lives, we are constantly weighing the different values and trying to determine what's more important to us. And it is really uncomfortable when we say our entertainment is more important than someone else's safety. This is the same in the NHL. If the NHL says one more time that repeated hits to the head have nothing to do with long-term cognitive difficulties, brain damage, I'm going to scream. I love the NHL. I do question every time I buy a ticket because I am reinforcing a product and allowing the league to say those things over and over again. Wow. Well, and, and even... I would say this is less of a moral issue, but I'll, I'll use the example of I'm a Nets fan, not a Knicks fan. Mm -hmm. You know, so the Knicks got rated as like the top five most valuable franchise in the United States, yet they've been terrible for 20 years. And it's kind of like you can't complain about James Dolan, the owner, mm -hmm. and then still buy Patrick Ewing and all these other Knicks. Like at some point you got to say like, and again, welcome, welcome to the Nets fans, you know, mm -hmm. but I mean, that's kind of the same thing is you can't complain. And I'll never forget now I'm really geeking out, but there was this center that played for the Seattle Supersonics. His name was Olden Polonese. Okay. And this fan in the front row yells at him and says, you're so lazy. And I, I can't, you know, I can't remember all of it, but he looked at him and he's like, bro, like you, you bought a ticket to pay me like 
you can go ahead and do that, but I'm taking your money. I mean, that's kind of the point that you're making. There's a a book. um, It was written quite a while ago. I think it's called NFL Confidential. And it's a supposed at the time, current NFL player in during training camp, and they disguise who he is and everything. And he's just he's talking about how the NFL is an awful organization, but he recognizes as a player he wants to be a second string, whatever his position is, because he's going to reap all the benefits. He is going to make everybody pay out a crazy large contract. He's going to set himself up for life, but he doesn't want to actually contribute to any of the production on the field. He doesn't actually want to have to do that work. But he's just going to take it's sort of like uh, giving a middle finger to the NFL. I think I'm going to change your words a little bit. We have a right to complain and we should and we should struggle with these things. We shouldn't raise objection and then mm-hmm. put our money without recognizing that contradiction. Life is full of contradiction. This is just me me going to a hockey game. I hate fighting in hockey. I don't think it belongs. I want to take it out. It's awful. There are moments where I st- still instinctively jump up and yell and it's like the Coliseum and I am pumped because there's something very visceral going on in front of me and I am excited about it. I sit down and then I get very upset with myself that I did that. I need to just recognize that contradiction and try to reconcile it over time. The same is true if you if you disagree with certain aspects of how a league runs or how we treat players or, you know, as commodities or not. Um, I feel like I'm rambling again. I'm sorry. No, no, is, no, no. This is uh, yeah. so, John. I, John, we're going to make an executive decision. We're yeah. going to have Katie back on. I think so, but I would like <laughs> to ask her one more question John, before we get to our final question. You are the elder statesman. Here. That, that is, that is. I'm still trying to get true. over that. In the beginning of the podcast, you said you had this like lofty head of hair. But yeah, anyways, we'll come back. Floppy. I'm a little stuck on that too. Yeah, yeah. It was, <laughs> it was glorious. You should have seen it. Anyway, I, I think one of the questions that I want to because I feel like it, it. It weighs on my heart, and uh, this is a total selfish question now. Okay, so total selfish question. You're a woman who's involved in this industry. You you addressed kind of a, a you answered one of Peter's questions about that before. Mm-hmm. Uh, Peter and I are both raising girls, mm-hmm. um, so admittedly, this is a selfish question. What advice would you give our girls? as they're growing up in this culture or give us as we raise our girls Mm -hmm. in this culture to make them like aware of this, but not like to put it in its right place. Wow. John, thank you for asking that. No pressure, Katie. (laughs) (laughs) To make them aware of the dynamic, the dynamic, the dynamic that you were describing, like, like what do you, or maybe a better way to put it would be if you could go back to your Mm. 10 year old self Mm. and tell 10 year old Katie about sports, what would you tell her? You know, this is a difficult one. Ten-year-old Katie was playing with the boys, mm-hmm. was the best defender on her soccer team, could stop a forward on the other team in his tracks and have the whole crowd watching us go, oh, ten-year-old mm. Katie didn't question any of it. 22-year-old Katie did. Um, and I I struggle with this just in, I mean, not being a parent myself. I think about my parents constantly telling me I was loved, I was beautiful, I was smart, I was all those things. I questioned every single one of them quite regularly and to a pretty severe degree as I started aging more and more. And I, 
it's the fight parents fight against a wave of cultural messages. You're a drop in the bucket compared to everything else. And you can't block your kids from all of those messages, nor do I really think you should, because then you create kids who have no idea what the world is around them. Um, I think just continuing to reinforce that they are more than just one thing. If they're great at sport, they're not just a great athlete. If they're super, super smart, they're not just smart. And this, I mean, this is like, here's my like family mess mm-hmm. coming out on the table. You know, I'm the youngest of four. And so we we were identified a lot, very unidimensionally. Gosh, I'm using that term multidimensional and unidimensional a lot. So like my eldest sister was the artsy one. My other sister was the smart one. My brother was the um, sort of a little bit of the like social outcast. I was the bubbly one. When you're those things and that's how you feel like you were described for the bulk of your life, it's hard to feel like you're anything other than those things. So I think that, um, you know, there's been a lot of emphasis lately on not just telling girls that they're pretty. Mm. Tell them that they're smart. Tell them that they're generous. Tell them all the great qualities about them. I think just continuing to reinforce that stuff and continuing to reinforce God made you as you are meant to be. You do not need to be anything else or anyone else for anyone else. That you are who you are supposed to be. You are growing up. And if you stay with God, you are the embodiment. You are becoming more and more throughout your life of how he wants you to be. And so, yeah, it stinks if you don't have a prom date. It stinks if you're home on a Saturday night alone and you feel like you're supposed to turn into someone else. And and I, I go back to the dating thing a lot because I just think that that is where a lot of women and girls who feel like they're lacking, that that is the most visual area in which we feel like we're lacking. Like it's on public display to everybody else. If I feel like I'm not that bright, me and my professors know I'm not that bright, you know, like not where I think I should be. But if people know I'm single, everybody knows I'm single. And so I think that this pressure to couple up in our society and to just have like we start as girls start giving up on those other things we feel like we're lacking because we're not coupled up, even though we might be excelling in other ways. And that that dynamic is really precarious. And, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to suggest that and then you're going to emphasize that and then your kids are going to grow up and screwed up in one way because you overemphasize that. I mean, parents well, have been asking these questions for generations, right? Well, but but what you're bringing up is and I, I think this is true for both male and female is, you know, just if you're over focused on one area. So we've talked yeah. about this before, like I've chosen that my social media presence is a little bit more professional than personal. That's one of the podcasts I listened to. Yeah, yeah. yeah. In preparation for this. Wow. Look, about that. look at that. I, I appreciate that. You and my mom and John's mom. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, hey, wait, you said thousands of listeners. Yeah. Approaching thousands. But <laughs> anyway, but um but you know, I think about with my daughter, I, I made the conscious decision that I'm not gonna take pictures of her crying and her upset. And like, cause I want her to go back to that and say like dad tried his best to like, I don't want a 14 year old Haley coming up to me and saying that. Now the other side of that, that I process through is I don't want people just to look at my daughter and feel like she's just this smiley, wonderful Mm -hmm. kid. And there is this, you know, I'm challenged by, and I don't know about you with Hannah. I want my daughter to believe that she can do what God created her to do and be really good. But I also like, Hey, if you get a normal sixty to seventy thousand dollar job, like you're enough. Like mm-hmm. if you are a stay at home mom, 
And and that's just such hard. And I think that's kind of what you're bringing up. Absolutely. And it's the same like you're an angry, aggressive girl on the field. Cool. Be that girl. You need to be. But maybe we'll talk about how you don't need to curse while you're doing all that, you know. So let's close up uh, with the last question. Um, how do we bring Jesus into this? So what we'll do is um, John and I are actually going to answer this question and then we'll bring you into it. And whatever we mess up, um, we will try to fix. John, why don't you get started for us? Well, I was going to get started by handing it off to you and uh, having you talk about it first. But no, I. I, I, I keep on going back to this idea of the dehumanization that we can do within sports like that. That resonated with me, what, how you kind of wove that thread in through there. And I think Jesus would probably call that part out um, in what we do. I love the fact that Jesus looks at each individual um, with compassion as an individual I was just reading a story this morning uh, in the Bible about Jesus healing uh, a deaf man. And it was really, really significant because all of the crowds around Jesus wanted to heal, wanted him to heal this man. But rather than Jesus just listening to the crowds, he took this man aside and he spoke to that man individually. And he looked at that man as another human being. And he addressed what that man wanted him to do and not what the crowds wanted him to do. And I think within this aspect of sports in our culture, sometimes we get into this crowd think and we get into this, this uh, manner of thinking of, of, well, just do this. And we look at people as less than human, whether that's athletes or coaches or managers or whatever. And, uh, I think that's dangerous when we do that. So uh, I think that's something to take away from this conversation is maybe even just to remind ourselves, uh, these people that we sometimes look up to and we think are heroes in one way or another, they're actually human beings. Um, and we should probably address them as they're human beings. Mm. You know, I, I'm going to just copy off of Katie. She kept on saying that we're, we're not comfortable with the gray area and you know, I, I hope our listeners hear that the Bible is far more comfortable with the gray area than we are. I just want to read a verse. So Paul, the writer of most of the New Testament, said this. Therefore, I do not run like someone running aimlessly. I do not fight like a boxer beating the air. No, I strike a blow to my body and make it my slave so that after I've preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. You know, and we don't have time to go through the Greek, but I, I just think it's important for our listeners to hear that. You know, we we sometimes look at the Bible through our 21st century lens, but the majority of people that followed Jesus in the first century were um, lower income. They were slaves. And and I, I read this passage. And so the 21st century part of me says, is boxing really a good thing or something? But the writer Paul feels comfortable to use this as an example to leverage it. And in some ways, as you study, you know, Roman history, you know, the athletes were dehumanized as much then, possibly even more than today. And later on, one of the most powerful letters that Paul writes is this story called Philemon or the book called Philemon, where 
he writes about this slave Onesimus and he tells the slave owner to let him go, but he tells the slave to go back. And he's basically, and again, like I said, we don't have time to talk about all the intricacies of slavery, but basically he tells everybody in that story, in that situation to give up a part of themselves for the gospel, for the betterment of the kingdom. And as I look at sport, sports at its best, is us giving up for the gospel, for us living in such a way that we care for those that don't have a voice. And there's no simple answers. And I think I look at what the Bible does, and Paul, even in mentioning boxing, is he's he's acknowledging this is the reality of what life looks like, but there's something more to come. And so I guess as we talk about dehumanizing athletes, as we talk about women in sports, as we've talked about all these different topics, like the higher value is to the gospel of see every person as created in the image of God and to let that value take us forward. I don't know how I follow that up. Um, that was pretty, pretty uh, thought provoking. Um, I will comment though, if uh, you guys do have me back at some point, we can talk about action sports, uh, about combat sports and how we deal with, violence in them and why we celebrate them or don't and the things that we struggle with. Um, or you can just come to my class at some point and <laughs> we can talk about that. Um, you know, in preparation, knowing this question was coming, I kept going back to idolatry and I think sport you can think of in two ways, whether you're a participant or a spectator, you can think of it as the thing, the focus, the the entertainment, the distraction, the, the, the thing, or you can think of it as the platform for yeah. other things. So you can use sport to dive into your faith. You can use sport as a platform to talk about, uh, social justice. We could go 18,000 different ways. We could do, this could be the podcast sport and Christianity. I'm mm. sure you can find probably 14,000 of them out there. Um, but I keep leaning back to the, it can't, it shouldn't be our obsession. It shouldn't be an idol. And it's the moment where we treat it higher than Christ, when we are focused more, when more of our time and our effort and energy is going to sport as a thing, maybe not necessarily as the platform. We think of it as the thing instead of the platform for other outcomes. I think it's exhausting to think about sport as a platform always for something else. There's a moment where we just want to enjoy it, whether we're doing it or watching it or whatever. That's fine. But it's all in the balance of keeping it in check and not having it become an idol in our lives that distracts us from our greater purposes. Wow, what a good final word and uh, about Jesus. So if you are looking for us, uh, please go to whygodwhypodcast.com. Um, make sure that you uh, review us. Give us a five-star review on iTunes. And uh, as we like to say, sharing is caring. And uh, make sure that you uh, also follow Dr. B. Katie on Instagram. We'll be sharing that with a lot of our posts. And uh, we hope that you have a wonderful day today. Thank you so much for joining us. Mm -hmm.